Good to see you. Uh, happy homecoming. It's fun to be back on campus. I, uh, I came here to Northwestern as, uh, as a young, white, Midwestern evangelical Christian kid. And, uh, and I, had this, um, I had this understanding of Christianity that was oriented around a God who, while he was good and powerful and so on and so forth, was also militant and violent, actually endorsed the violent demise of people uh, for his own accomplishments and for his desires, which was kind of a troubling thing for me, but I just kind of rolled with it and I accepted it. I, I, as I, I grew up into this faith, I recognized that, uh, that, the, th that the thing that God was most concerned about was my morality and doing things as perfectly as possible. And so, um, uh, you know, and so as I read the scriptures and as I learned the story as, as a kid, what I began to recognize is God is hyper fixated on morality and so disgusted was God that I couldn't do it right or we couldn't do it perfectly or we weren't faithful enough that God had to come down here in human form in the person of Jesus and show us what perfected morality looks like. Ultimately, what I learned is that God had to actually wear God's own wrath on the cross. So God satisfied God's wrath on the cross and now kind of remains aloof and distant and indifferent unless we screw up. And if we screw up, then God's going to come down and enact some kind of personal or corporate punishment on us. But ultimately what God's doing is waiting for us to come and join him in heaven one day. What I realized is that um, my job then as, this, uh, as a young Christian was to follow a Jesus who looked a lot like me, who valued the things that I valued. Uh, I had to somehow convince everybody else of the superiority of this God that I, I knew all the while maintaining my morality, maintaining my safety, building my abundance, turning a blind eye to the things that make me too uncomfortable in the world and holding on to hope for heaven. Is this anybody else's story in the, in the room? Um, and I was fine with all of it. I was fine. It's all I knew, right? But then I was a senior at Northwestern. Two weeks into my senior year, everything changed for me. I remember waking up, having my Rice Krispies, turn on the television, and I watch airplanes fly into buildings in New York City. It was the beginning of a crisis for me. Two days later, I began to listen to the Christian leaders that I had so respected and admired calling for revenge and not reconciliation. And I watched as the Christian world in our country celebrated the thought of revenge. And here were the two questions I asked. Number one, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that endorses the violent demise of my constructed enemies? Second question, is this Jesus worth my life? Super important questions. It projected me into a journey that I have been on ever since. I realized then, that day, 9-11, 2001, that I needed a better vantage point on Jesus. I needed to actually identify a more legitimate Jesus because any Jesus who would authenticate the violent demise of someone who is deemed my enemy is, in fact, a Jesus that is not worth my life. And I would wager is not worth your life either. 
And I knew that in order to get a different vantage point, I had to pop myself out of the sterile homogeneity that I knew. I had to actually crawl into the margins. I had to begin to place myself with the oppressed. And friends, in order to do that, I actually had to rebel against the Jesus that I had been given. Because remember, that Jesus told me to be safe. And in order to be safe, I stay homogenous and clean with people who are just like me. Well, it turns out, ours is a Jesus who said, do you want to be found and formed by me? Go to the margins. Enter into the places of pain. You're not going to find me among your homogenous cloister. You need to actually go into the streets, roll up your sleeves, and get the muck of it under your fingernails. That's where you're going to be found and formed on me. And so that's what I have been doing for the past 15 years. And I would love to share a little bit about what I'm learning, if that's okay. Good. Let's do this. It's my friend Ben. Ben is a, a pastor activist in the streets of Oakland. Ben is teaching me that Jesus does not look like me. That Jesus was actually a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who lived on the underside of the empire. It's my friend Milad. He's a Palestinian Christian, a Middle Eastern refugee, teaching me that Jesus understands what it means to be a Middle Eastern refugee whose life is fully dependent upon the benevolence of others. This is my friend Dee McIntosh. She's a local pastor. Get to know this woman. She's teaching me that Jesus actually lived the practice of lament because he was proximate to the pain. He was in the trenches. He himself was in pain. This is my friend Alejandra. She's a Mexican colleague of mine. She is a peacemaker like you can't imagine. She's teaching me that Jesus knew how to live with borderless hospitality. That he lived the liturgy of the shared table with all of the wrong kinds of people. My friend Dominique, he's a, a pastor, theologian, activist in Chicago. He's teaching me that Jesus actually understood what it feels like to live in the chains of an unjust criminal justice system. He felt the flesh-tearing impact of the whips and ultimately became a victim of capital punishment so that we could be free. As I have been building these friendships, and not just in this kind of heartstrings kind of way, but actually joining them in the streets, following Jesus into the points of pain in the world, I am discovering a more legitimate Jesus. I'm, I'm discovering a Jesus who's worth my life. The Jesus that I'm discovering is a Jesus who was, yes, compassionate. Yes, he was loving. Yes, he was present, but he was creatively and intentionally nonviolent. This is a Jesus who spent his life so that others could be free, could flourish, could be restored and be a part of restoration. And so let's talk about this Jesus a little bit. Um, I don't know what your picture of Jesus is. Oftentimes, our picture of Jesus is that he was this nice, inoffensive guru that told people to be nice. And friends, I'm just going to go ahead and say that you don't get killed for saying be nice. You get killed when you defy systems. And so ours is a Jesus who actually stood in diametric opposition to any and every system that opposed the kingdom of God. I'll show you what I mean. Luke 3, go there, device or your Bible. Ready? We're going to move fast because we're on a clock. Luke chapter 3, we're going to start in the very beginning. Let me tell you who's on the scene in Jesus' day. There's this guy named Herod the Great, right? We know him. Herod the Great was a master visionary. He was a builder. The things that he built stand to this day. Unbelievable. But he was a paranoid, crazy politician. 
crazy. Here's how paranoid he was. He had 10 wives and 43 kids. His favorite wife, her name was Miriam. Herod the Great figured that Miriam's oldest son was getting a little too ambitious for the throne. So you know what he does? He brings Miriam, her son, and her mom into his bedchambers and has them all killed right in front of him so that no more life can come out of that bloodline. He then had his two most ambitious sons killed. This is the Herod who, when he heard about a king of the Jews that had been born, he enacts a genocide decree in the city of Bethlehem for baby boys two years old and younger. I have a two-year-old. You imagine the violence and the, the sickness that would actually cause someone to say, let's kill those little boys. That's how paranoid he was, right? He knew that he was dying, and so he had all of the Jewish elite rounded up and put in his dungeon. And then he gave an execution order so that on the day that Herod the Great dies, these people would all die too, so that Israel would mourn and remember the day that Herod the Great died. Five days before he died, he had his eldest son executed. Crazy, right? So then he's got three surviving sons. Their names are Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. And they all decide that once Herod the Great's out of the way, we're safe for the first time in our lives. And so they go over to Rome. They all wanted to sit in his throne. So here's what, here's what the Caesar did. And rather than giving power to one of them, he split up the power between the three. Antipas got the north in Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his life. Archelaus got the center, which is kind of where Jerusalem is. And then Philip got the southern region. So now they come back, and they're instated as like these mini-me kings, all right? So get this. When God put on flesh and entered into the neighborhood, he did so into an unjust, occupied system that was ruled by political crazy people. All right? Let's watch what happens. Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Italy and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, or, or Archelaus, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to, son, uh, to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So what's going on here in Luke chapter 3? The who's who, the power structure, the systems, the things that we value, who are actually the holders of power are being named. But pay attention to this. When the word of God comes in that day, who does it come to? A nobody. It comes to a, a rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert. Apparently, God is not consumed with the systems and the structures that are so important to us. When God's word came down here, it came to a nobody. It came to somebody that we would probably deem mentally ill. We would write off. We would say, that person is in the margins. That person isn't worth listening to. When God's word came, it came to that guy. Okay, jump over to verses 18 and 19. So with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people, but Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. We're talking about Herod Antipas, the one up in Galilee, okay? We'll get to what happened here in a second, but ultimately what happens is the word of God comes to John the Baptist and he begins to talk about a better way. He begins to talk about a way of justice and restoration and hope. And, and, and in those moments, the, the guy that we would deem mentally ill becomes a threat to the empire. Isn't it something that the hermit becomes a threat to the power system? And so what does the power system do when it's defied? They silence the threat. 
They put John the Baptist in prison in Galilee. Go over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is on the scene in this time. Okay? So John the Baptist, his cousin, has just been put into, uh, into prison in, in Galilee. And so Jesus, it says in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, hearing that John the Baptist had been put in prison in Galilee, withdrew to Galilee. Galilee is the most dangerous neighborhood in the world for Jesus at that time. And rather than retreating from it and going away, Jesus immerses right into the radical center of it. It's like Jesus is saying, you think you can silence this movement by taking out John the Baptist? You've got no idea what you're up against. Try taking me on. You're not going to silence this movement. And here's the thing. He showed up and he got right in the middle of it. We live with this myth of safety. Like the, like the most important thing for us to do as followers of Jesus is be safe. But what we see in Jesus is that he enters into the most dangerous places because that's where restoration is needed. He goes to the most dangerous neighborhood in the world because that's where he was needed. Amazing, right? Now, as to why John the Baptist was in jail, this is interesting. Go to Luke chapter 14. Herod Antipas, the guy up in, in the Galilee, he has some marriage problems. Okay, Herod Antipas, his first marriage was a political marriage. Uh, the, the, the king of, uh, of Nabatea, which was way down south, hated Antipas. And so to broker peace with Nabatea, Antipas marries the princess of Nabatea. Okay, so now Antipas and the princess of Nabatea are married to one another, okay? In the, not too long after that, Herod Antipas falls in love with this woman named Herodias. Now, Herodias is the wife of Philip, which means, oh, and she's the daughter of another one of the brothers. And so for Antipas to take Herodias as his wife means that she will be his wife, his sister-in-law, and his niece. It's a bit complicated, right? So that's what he does. He takes Herodias as his wife from his brother Philip, of course, the princess of Nabatea. She's not thrilled with this. So what does she do? She goes back down south and says, hey, King Daddy, guess what just happened? Dad, who already hates Antipas, says, nah, uh not to my girl. So he sends a, uh, an army of 20,000 troops up and around Galilee, to go, uh, up and around Israel to get to Galilee, okay? Interesting that that's going on. So here's everything that's happening in the scene. Let's go to Luke chapter 14. Um, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking about counting the cost. Y you know, like, it's, it turns out it's not about asking Jesus into your heart and then being nice and then going to heaven when you die. Turns out saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to a cruciform, a cross-shaped way of life. It costs us everything. And Jesus is saying, you need to know that up front. Are you in? Are you up for that? So he's like having this dialogue with people about counting the cost. Here's what happens. Verse 28, Jesus says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Right? You budget. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. And everybody would be like, Ha ha, what a clown that contractor would be. Like, we would make fun of him for life. And so everyone's kind of like getting it. Like, yeah, you, you sit down, you, you weigh the cost, right? 
Then Jesus says this, or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider he, whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000? Okay, so there's 20,000 troops coming up from Nabatea. Antipas heard about it, and he sent 10,000 troops to meet that army of 20,000 and was completely wiped out. This is current events. So when Jesus is talking about counting the cost, he starts with this kind of hypothetical, funny illustration, and then he goes right to current events. You need to count the What kind of fool king would send 10,000 troops to meet 20,000 troops? Count the cost. People at this point are going, whoa, 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 Jesus, you can tell these like funny hypotheticals. But when you start to actually defy the real system, there's cost to that. If you want to hold on to your life, you don't defy the system. Back to the story, John the Baptist is still in jail. He's the cousin of Jesus, which means he's the cousin of the Messiah. Remember, this is the John the Baptist who from the, the, the waters of the Jordan River saw Jesus coming along the banks and said, Behold the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. This is the John the Baptist who is crystal clear who Jesus was. But now because his circumstances have changed, he's still in shackles. He's beginning to wonder, are you who I thought you were? Because if you're the Messiah, if you're Jesus, if you're, if you're the savior of the world, then I should not be in chains anymore. Right? That makes sense. So, so, he's, so he grab, gathers a group of, uh, of his people and he somehow sends them over to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you who I thought you were? So now, in that day, most people were illiterate. And, um, and, and in Israel, you couldn't stamp, if you were a leader, you couldn't stamp your, stamp your face on it like we've got George Washington and others on our coins because that would be a graven image. And so the leaders in Jesus' day, what they would do is rather than stamping their face on a coin, they would choose an image or a symbol and they would mint coins with those symbols, and then they would disseminate their money of their reign, right? So like in, people who are listening to Jesus would have a pocket full of change that looked like this, all right? Herod Antipas, his symbol was the Galilean reed. So you see that on the coin on the left. That's, that's the symbol that his coins, uh, his coins were minted with. And so what we have here is this moment where this, uh, the Jesus, uh, Jesus, or John's disciples come out to Jesus and say, are you who John thought he was? Look at uh, Luke chapter 7. Are you who John thought you, you were? And Jesus answers, him and sa answers them and says, go tell John what you see. The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame are getting up and walking. He's actually saying, I am the fulfillment of our prophets. Because the prophet said when the Messiah is here, the mute will speak, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the, the lame will get up and walk. Go tell them what you see. In other words, yeah. And even though I'm the Messiah, it might not change his reality. And as, and as they leave, uh, Jesus says this, when John's messengers had gone in verse 24, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Immediately people understand that, not as like, oh yeah, I can imagine like a reed. They're saying, whoa, 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 you're talking about Antipas. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see someone with no convictions? Did you go out to see somebody with no character? 
What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a, a, a shakable kingdom or did you go out to see something better? And Jesus says, I tell you, you went out to see something better. Again, Jesus stands in diametric opposition to the systems that defy the kingdom of God. And as Jesus lived this way, it began to encourage and embolden people. It was outrageous to Archelaus and Antipas, but it began to fire these people up. Look in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. One of my favorite verses in the text. Soon afterwards, Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife, uh, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. There's actually this crazy myth that it was only bros who followed Jesus. No! Women were intimately invested and involved in everything that was happening every day of Jesus' life and ministry. And so as Jesus was living this courageously defiant way of life, other people started to pick up on it. It shaped their lives too. Most notably, a community of women. The dudes aren't getting courageous. As a matter of fact, you remember a few chapters later, they all scatter. It's the women who begin to actually lay down their lives like they see Jesus doing. One of the women mentioned here, her name is Joanna. She's the wife of Cusa. Cusa was the manager of Herod Archelaus's entire estate. Remember, Archelaus was the ruler around Jerusalem. So something had happened in an encounter between Jesus and Joanna that reshaped her entire life. So much so that she became, she went from, from wealthy and comfortable with the privilege of the status quo to actually leveraging her, her privilege to, and redistributing her wealth for those who were not yet flourishing. She began to fund Jesus' ministry. So get this, if you were to actually look at a list of donors in, in, uh, in Jesus' ministry, Herod Archelaus would be right at top, channeled through Joanna, the wife of Cusa. Amazing. Like, Herod Archelaus would be in the Platinum Club, the Golden Eagle Club, which is a beautiful irony. It's like God is looking down, saying, huh, kingdom come actually takes some resources. I'll redistribute money from Archelaus, right? Now, this isn't just Johanna, like, writing a check and throwing it away. This is Joanna at the cost of her life. Why? Because if Archelaus finds out that the salary that he is giving Cusa is being redistributed, redistributed to Jesus, whom he hated, it's not just that Cusa loses his job, they lose their lives. The magnificent defiance and the courage of Jesus to oppose systems became embodied in these people, specifically women like Joanna. Which Jesus do you follow, friends? Do you follow a nice, docile Jesus who looks like you and values what you value? Or do you follow a magnificently defiant Jesus who will always stand diametrically opposed to the systems that are killing people? The answer to that question is critical. Why? Because the Jesus that we follow informs who it is that we're becoming. One final picture. Go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem a final time. He's coming up over from Bethany, up over the Mount of Olives, and he's about to descend into the city of Jerusalem. And there are some Pharisees, there are some hyper-religious people 
who somehow have been so impacted by Jesus that they approach him, they come to him and say, Jesus, if you come into this city, you will die. And in Luke chapter 13, verses 31, because they're talking about Archelaus, Archelaus hates Jesus. Archelaus wants him dead, as do the religious folk. If you come in, Archelaus is going to kill you. And in, in 1331, Jesus says, you go tell that fox that I'll be here today, and I'll be here tomorrow, and on my third day, I'll have my victory. Go tell that fox, right? In our day, what is a fox? It's characteristic of sly and cunning, right? Not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, a fox was someone who, uh, it, it was an animal who in the, in the wilderness would wait over in the bushes while a lion made the kill, and the lion would make a kill and have its fill, and then when the lion left, the fox would kind of prance over to the kill and start eating the kill and then kind of puff out its chest and look around like, yeah, I just did that. That was me. So in Jesus' day, a fox is a poser. It's a fraud. It's a wannabe. So Jesus is saying, you go tell that fraud that I will be here today, I will be here tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll have my victory. But he doesn't stop there. If you continue in the text, he turns to Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to hold you to me like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not let me. So he uses a fox to talk about Archelaus and a hen to refer to himself, a chicken. What's the imagery of a chicken in today's world? Scared, timid, stupid, defenseless. A chicken, a hen has really no claws, has no weapons to defend herself. But what is the only way that a hen can defend her chicks when a fox gets into the hen house? She spreads her wings over them and sacrifices herself so that they can live. This is a more legitimate Jesus. Northwestern, if your Jesus does not look like the cross, he's a Jesus that is not worth your life. 